Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. We're back today on the Heart of Leaders podcast with Walt Rakowicz, former CEO of Prologis and author of the soon-to-be-published book on transparency. He might even tell us the real title. I'm Rick Barrera, your host, and we're going to get right into it with Walt, learning about one of the greatest turnarounds in Wall Street history. Walt, can you set the stage for us? It was 2008. You had left Prologis because you felt the company leadership was headed in the wrong direction. You were happily retired and doing a lot of bike riding when suddenly... (laughs) Yes, when suddenly I was asked by the board to revive the company from the brink of bankruptcy. At the time, it seemed sudden, but it really had happened over a period of time. I had left the company uh, after being there for about 15 years in January of 2008. And we all remember how bad and ugly 2008 was. I can't remember exactly how much the S&P 500 was down, but it was down fairly big, 30% plus. In the beginning of that year, our company's stock was trading at about $70 plus per share, which translated into an equity market capitalization of a little over $20 billion. And by the middle of the year, the stock value had been cut in half, but it really didn't seem that bad because so was the whole market. The whole market had been beaten up. And so were we any different than the market? And, uh, but by the fall, the stock price was down by 80%. And so it was clear that the market didn't like what they saw. And it wasn't, we weren't just the market anymore. Well, then and by November of the year, uh, that year, I was called by the board of directors and, and I was asked to take over the realm as the CEO. Uh, they had let go. Uh, their intention was to let go of the prior CEO. And, um, and so in November, I took over. The stock at that point in time was down ninety six and a half percent. It was tra- <laughs> it was like trading. Yeah, three and a half percent left. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's hard to go down to hundred. Uh, down hundred. That means it's trading at zero. So we had gone from seventy dollars a share down to I believe the the week I took over it fall it had fallen to two dollars and twenty cents a share or so. And at that time, we were the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500 behind AIG, which was later to be taken over by the federal government. They were down 99%. And, um, and general growth properties, GGP, uh, they were later to go bankrupt. They were down 97.5%. And so we, too, were on the verge of bankruptcy. And uh, frankly, the market could smell it. And, you know, so we were trading for pretty much option value at that point in time. And many of the analysts were writing reports about 
Prologis is pending bankruptcy and Prologis was going down. And so you had this behemoth that was, it was unfortunate, but had made all of these mistakes and so forth and so on. And so it was a really interesting time for me to come back and run the company because, you know, in three months to six months at the most, we were either going to go bankrupt or figure out a way of not going bankrupt. And so <laughs> it was a, it was, a, it was, it was a difficult time to come back and lead to be, to be candid with you, but that's what I was asked to do by the board. So what, what, what made you go back though? Because a lot, I mean, you know, you, you escaped, you know, you were, you were whole financially. You were, you didn't need to go back. You, you were enjoying your life, riding your bike. What, why would you take on a Herculean task like that? Well, you know, I, I had been with the company for 15 years before that. And while I had been gone for eight or nine months, you know, I hired many of the people who worked there. And I knew what a great company that we had all built together. It actually had a great brand. It built first-class product in the marketplace. And so it was known as a first-class brand. And I just didn't want to see it go down. I mean, I, I care a lot for the people. Um, I knew many of their families, and I had personally invested countless hours of time with them over years and years and years. And I mean, I just felt an obligation. I felt like I had to do my best to try to change things for the better. The interesting thing is that I, you know, I, I, I spent the majority of the summer prior to that literally praying that I, that, that I would not be put in this position. I, the last thing I wanted to do was to go back and run the company, but you know, the the events are out of your control, you know? And so (laughs) the events were out of my control. And, and when the board called me to do it, I, I just, you know, I could either put my self interest at, you know, at in in line and say, no, I don't want to do that. That's, that sounds like a lot of brain damage for me. I'll take a CEO job someplace else. Or, um, you know, you're just, you look around and you say, well, there's no one else that can do this. The, the chief financial officer at the time uh, had been with the company for a couple years. He did not want to take over the company. And the chief investment officer, uh, who both of them very capable guys, uh, didn't, did not want to take over the company, and nor did either of them feel qualified to do it at the time. And they both said, well, why don't you bring Walt back? And if you bring Walt back, we'll stay. Um, because the board was afraid about losing them too. And so, you know, I, it was really a bizarre time frame, and things, decisions needed to be made quickly. And um, I looked around and I thought, you know, there's nobody that can do this. It has enough institutional knowledge of the company that could do it. And um, so I decided to do it. <laughs> that was, and I looked around and I said, you know, we got to, we got to try to save this company. We got to try to save as many jobs as we can. And all these people, I know them and their families. And so there were a lot of things that kind of, you know, went through my mind over the weekend that they called me and they gave me 24 hours to think about it. So it wasn't a lot of time to (laughs) to stew over it. Yeah. Go back, talk to your wife, you know, think it over, get back to us in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. But make sure you say yes. (laughs) So, so what's the first thing you did? Very first thing when you showed up. Well, you know, you know, uh, we're, uh, you and I have talked about this. I, I believe strongly in the power of transparency, honesty, openness, even showing humility, vulnerability, humanness in the face of adversity. I, I just believe so strongly in that. 
And I wanted to show that to our employees and to our stakeholders, predominantly our stockholders, but our bondholders and everyone else that was out there that had some stake in the company. Because I, I believed that I had to take the first step in establishing trust. And I just believed that I could establish trust through being a transparent person. But again, I'm, I'm defining this transparency a little bit different than just openness. I mean, I think it's humility, vulnerability, a bunch of stuff like that. And so day one, I stood before our employees, because I think the employees were the most important group. And I told them the truth. I told them that mistakes had been made. Um, and while I hadn't been there for, you know, eight or nine months, you know, some of those mistakes were on my back because I was there prior to that. I, you know, I, I told them that we were in a bind. They all knew it, but we were in a grave bind uh, that we were going to fight like hell and that we needed their help. We as a management team needed their help and that it wasn't going to be easy, but that we would be committed to, to transparent communication, transparency, period, in the months ahead. And we asked them to, to hold us accountable for it. Uh, we told them, and when I say we, it wasn't just me. The, the management team stood up. We were all lockstep in this. Um, you know, sometimes when things are just so down and out, it's amazing how people listen and <laughs> cooperate. <laughs> and so you have their undivided attention. Exactly. We had their undivided attention. So perhaps this this was all good. And we told them our offices were open, that we weren't going, you know, we didn't live in some ivory tower and, um, you know, we needed their help. And um, day two, uh, my CFO and I flew to New York and we met with over a thousand shareholders and we told them, and we met with them all in the, all in the same room. Um, some of them were webcast. A lot of them were personally present. And we told them the same thing. Um, that it wasn't going to be easy, that, that we as a management team, and frankly, the, the, the outgoing CEO had made a lot of mistakes and we were in a bind. We're going to fight like hell to get out of this, so forth and so on. And at the end, it was really interesting. At the end of the conference, we told them something that we were quoted over and over and over about during the entire three year turnaround period. And that was, we told them to watch us, but don't trust us. And it was, it was very powerful because we knew that trust was already lost and that we would have to re-earn the badge of trust over time. And we told them that. But you weren't saying, you weren't saying distrust us. You were just saying, you know, we're not asking for your trust until we earn it. That's exactly right. But we were asking them to watch us. But by asking them to watch us, what we really wanted them to do is to hold their investment in us, <laughs> not because they trusted us, but because they were interested in figuring out how we were going to figure out how to do this or something. I don't know. But This is the investment in which they've lost 96.5% already. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, some of them, you have to remember that some of these shareholders probably sold out as the stock went down to 50, 40, 30. And, and now they're looking at it two bucks and they're thinking, now, boo. Can we can we invest in these guys because this is one heck of a deal? Can they turn it around? And so yeah. they didn't all lose ninety six percent, but certainly the value of the stock did. So anyway, I, I think I think it was powerful, and, and so the, that that was really the first thing I did. And so if I had to wrap it up and just say, okay, at the end of the day, what was it? It was it was just trying to establish trust, reestablish trust through transparency, through the acknowledgement 
the vulnerability, the humility uh, associated with being in the position that we were in. And I think it, it starts with that acknowledgement. It starts with that humility. And I think that if you can, if you can approach it that way, uh, there's a lot of upside. Yeah. And that's yeah, what yeah. turned out to happen for us. Yeah. I think you had to get awful dang humble. You do. Absolutely. To yep. ask, you know, to ask him to hang on when you're down like that. Yep. So you had quite a head banging revelation. I did. And it, um, it sure taught me the power. And I really mean the power of vulnerability in managing people about a month or so into my tenure as a CEO. So that puts us in call it December of 2008. We were all sitting around this room and all of us, meaning most of our financial, the key financial people in the organization. And um, it was after midnight. We had been working dog years um, and, you know, getting up in the morning at five o'clock and coming back into the office, trying to kind of stave off bankruptcy. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me uh, that we were going to go bankrupt. Matter of fact, I, I just never believed it deep down inside. And one of um, our financial people, I can't remember if it was the, uh, our treasurer or the CFOs had said in the meeting, well, Walt, we've run all the numbers, you know, many different ways. And it, it would appear that we're going to blow covenants on somewhere order magnitude of $8 billion in bonds. Um, our financial covenants were income oriented covenants, meaning that if your earnings went down over time and you didn't have a certain coverage ratio of earnings to interest that you would blow your, your covenants. And what's the, what's the impact of that to the organization for, for our listeners who aren't financial people, what happens when you blow a covenant? So when you blow, blow a covenant, it means that the, um, the investors in your bonds bonds could go after the company um, and the only way that you can stave that off is to declare bankruptcy. And so what effectively our financial guys were telling me is that we're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And I, I asked them, how long is that going to take? And they said, probably within the next two to three months. And my face got as white as a ghost. I mean, I could just feel it. You know, you could just feel this rush coming over your face. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to faint here if I don't do something. And I looked around. And I said, do you guys mind if I just walk down the hallway? Um, and just I just need a breath of fresh air. You guys told me something pretty significant. And they said, no, no, no go ahead, Walt. So I walked down the hallway. I passed a few offices. And then I began to feel like I was going to pass out. And I saw an office in the, you know, the, the closest office to me was probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 feet away. And so, and there was a, a, you know, there was a chair that was sitting next to the desk. And so I thought if I could get that chair, that would be good. So I started walking to the chair and I almost got there, but I didn't make it and I fainted. And on the way down, my head hit the corner of this guy's desk and, uh, and it split my head open. Um, and so it, it knocked me out completely. And so I was there for what turned out to be close to 10 minutes. And, um, and then I woke up and I looked around and honestly, for the first 30 seconds, I had no idea where I was. And then it dawned on me that I had fallen in my, and there was a pool of blood that was on the floor and my head was killing me. 
And I, I looked at, uh, you know, I, I thought to myself, oh, my God, these people are still in the room waiting for me. And so I, I, I got to a bathroom. I kind of tried to suture it up and stop the bleeding. It was huge black and blue mark. And I got the blood to stop. And then I walked in the meeting almost as if, and I go, you know, okay, so let's keep talking about this. And, and just tried to almost ignore the fact that I had this big, big thing of honker on my head. And, um, and my CFO looks at me and he said, Walt, what is that big thing on, on top of your head? You look like Frankenstein, and I, you know, dude. I really looked at Frankenstein and, you know, I didn't know what to say to these guys. And so I, so I said, you know, guys, I'm going to tell you that the honest truth, I, I fainted. And on the way down, I hit, Chuck's desk and there's a pool of blood to prove it in that room. And, um, I said, I gotta be honest with you. I, you know, I'm the CEO of this company. I have no idea how to solve this problem. I just don't. And you know, you guys, and, and that's, that's hard for me as a CEO, right? I mean, you're supposed to have all the answers, yeah. but I don't, I don't know how to solve it. And I said, guys, we're either going to go bankrupt or you guys are going to have, have to help me figure out the solution to this. And you know, what was really interesting that vulnerability just brought everybody together. Just brought everybody together. It was just amazing. So just your your admission that you don't have all the answers. Yeah, the, the, just the admission that I had no all the answers. And you know what? The group came up with the, the right solution. They ultimately came up with the right solution. And we, we did stave off bankruptcy. We had to do a, a bunch of financial gymnastics to get there, but we eventually did it. And um, it just shows the power of vulnerability. I mean, really, I just became a different person, I believe, that day in the eyes of many of the people in the room. And by the way, you know, stories like that get out. They become folklore very, very quickly. And then people begin to ask me about it in the hallway, and I was happy to talk to them about it. You know, it just it was what it was. And I think it just brought us all together. So anyway, the, the, the moral of the story is that I believe there's power in vulnerability. And to the extent that you can show that as a manager, I think you can win the hearts of a lot of different people. So you talk a lot, Walt, about transparency. And you're writing a book about it. How do you, do, how do you define it? Well, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of ways to define it. But I think if you ask the typical person, what do they think about a transparent leader? I think most people define it as openness, telling it like it is. I mean, there were some people last year in the campaign that believed that Donald Trump was transparent. And I'm not going to get into a political argument here, but I mean, some people made the argument that he was willing to tell it like it is. So therefore, he's a transparent leader. I think that's the end result. Perhaps it's openness and and the like, but to me, people who know how to be transparent understand others. They understand what others desire to hear from them, and they're capable of acting in a transparent way because of that understanding. I find personally find that people who truly create trust through transparency, and by the way, that trust, that word trust is the end game. You're, you're, you're transparent because you're trying to create trust with people. And I find that those people possess three qualities. Now, there are many more, and there's probably a lot of different derivations of them. But, but for me, simplification comes in three. I call them my 3H core because they're all qualities that start with an H. And this all came to me through a discussion that I had 
with the CEO of Morgan Stanley when I first took over, which I won't get into at this point, but the first is humility. The second is honesty. And the third is humanness. And I, I, I talk about humility when I talk about humility, it's, it's really a strange word for leaders. I mean, leaders think about, you know, and even Webster's uh, defines it as weak, unassertive, submissive, that type of thing. Those aren't really leadership traits, are they? No, they're really, I mean, I wouldn't define leadership that way, but I think, I think real humility takes courage and confidence. It's not about being weak. It's about accepting your weaknesses, accepting the fact that you're weak and being willing to admit it. There's a vulnerability associated with it, um, but it doesn't mean that you can't be a great leader. You can't be courageous. You can't make decisions on your own. It just means that it's part of putting others first. Humble leaders, to me, are willing to admit their fears, and in doing so, they defeat them. Much like me falling on my head and being vulnerable. That's what humility is about. And it's about servant leadership, that type of thing. The honesty portion of it is kind of interesting to me because I, I believe that all people think they're being honest, or at least most people do. Um, but I don't think that the question is as much uh, what you think. I think the question is more what everybody else thinks because perceptions are reality. And so some leaders can be honest, but they can't be trustworthy because of what they don't say. <laughs> right. I've seen a lot of people say, you know, well, I'm not telling you this. I'm being on- I'm totally honest with you. Okay, well, that's fine. But what, is pe- what do people think of that? They think, well, that leader's not being honest because he's not telling me something. <laughs> and right. So you can be, you, you might be honest, but you don't be, per- you're not perceived as honest. And the way that you close that gap is through communication to me. It's not just about being truthful. Remember, it's about creating trust. I think you've got to communicate in a forthright and consistent manner. I think you've got to communicate even if you don't think you need to. I think you've got to communicate bad news even if it hurts. Those sorts of things. And once you, your, your people begin to think that you're communicating everything all the time, they trust that you will communicate it, whether it's good or that it's bad. Then all of a sudden, you will get there. You will be perceived as being an honest leader. And the third thing is humanness. And, and that's a, that's a, that's a big word, but um, I mean, it really just means to have a heart. It's, it's about being a human being caring for others. It's being human about how you treat other people. Are you there to serve them? Or are you there to serve yourself? Do they matter to you? Or are they just another body? Do you genuinely care about them? Do you ask them about their families? Do you care about their kids? Are you authentic to them? And there's a number of different ways that you as a leader can, can live that out. In my case, I rarely had lunch with any of the people on the executive team when I was in the office, which wasn't much. Um, I traveled a lot, but when I was in the office, I made sure I went downstairs every day that I was in the office and bought somebody lunch that I didn't know. It might've been Joe from accounting. You know, it might've been um, Jim from IT. And they were just stunned whenever I'd buy them lunch and I'd say, let's sit down and talk about your family. That's trying to, that's, doing your best to be human as a CEO, to close the gap, if you will, as a leader. And so that to me is, is, is transparency. I know it doesn't all translate to the typical um, uh, definition that people have about openness, but really, unless you're willing to be humble, put other people first, communicate and be honest through your communication and be human, really care about people and not just care about yourself and your own self-interest, I think you're not really being transparent. And so that's how I define it. 
That's great. That's great. So I want to talk about this process of, of having lunch with your folks because you had a process. So you went down to the lunch line, and how did you pick who you were having lunch with? It was the first person that was in front of me. So it was totally, <laughs> ra- it was totally random. In fact, it was so funny because there for a while – people would be looking over their shoulders to make sure Walt wasn't behind them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Be careful. Get, get no, the line was, behind me. Was, Walt might come. It was totally random. <laughs> it was when I got down there and it was the person in front of me. And if it happened to be a group, then it would, and so be it. I'd buy them all lunch and we'd just, you know, get together and we'd talk about. The first question is always, how's your family? Not how is the accounting department? Yeah. So that's a huge shift right there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think that's probably right. So can you give us a preview of the book, the little inside scoop before you publish? Well, it's just that, you know, it's, it's going to be geared to next generation leaders um, and it's going to be geared to their challenges in leading in the workplace today. Because I think we have a different workplace today than we had way back when. I mean, you've got information that travels very quickly. You've got the Internet, obviously, and, and you have all kinds of social media that people are dealing with and leaders are dealing with. And you have the next gen problem of, um, and particularly millennials, you know, having to probably manage older people in the workforce, uh, people that were outside of their generation, people that think differently than them. And um, it's always difficult when somebody young has to manage somebody older. And, and that, but that's in fact what is going to happen in the course of the next 10 years. And so in the book, I talk about the importance of how you lead people as a young leader. And uh, I believe the essence of leadership is how you influence other people. I believe that's very important. I talk about ways of doing that in today's environment. And um, we're going to bring transparency into it a lot. We'll bring my definition of transparency into it because I think there's some tried and true things that never really changed, even though the world has changed. And I want to get back to talking about that. I think it's, it, it will be a lot about, it's not about you, it's about others. There'll be a lot of that sprinkled into the book, but it will relate to, hopefully relate a lot more to the things that are going on in the workplace today. That's the goal of it. It's about half written. And so we not exactly where I'd like to see it uh, be at this point in time. So I don't know that I want to speak too much more about it than that, but that's sort of where we are today. Okay. So, so you're going to debut it here though. We'll, we'll, we'll be doing another interview with you on launch day. I would love to, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So how would you define heart led leadership? Well, much of this is similar to some of the things I've been talking about. I think the key to heart-led leadership is recognizing that as, as a leader, it's not about you. It's about others. And if you put yourself in others' shoes, you ask what they want and need and act on it, you're going to build trust. Leadership really is about, I believe that most successful leaders are the ones that build trust. Right. And so it's about, it's about building trust. And, and the key to effective leadership is to build that trust among all the people around you, people above you, people below you, people to the side of you that are peers. And so leaders who can put selfish motives aside, and that's hard. I mean, that, you know, it's easy to say, it's really hard to do. I can tell you that. But leaders that can do that, put their pride and egos aside, put their narcissism aside, and show their heart for others, are heart-led leaders in my view. Um, Some of that, is the humility that I talked about. Some of it is recognizing that honesty is perceived, not earned. It's earned, but earned through, through your actions and not through just saying that you're an honest person. And um, it's about being human and 
caring about the needs of the people that work for you, including their families and their interests and the things that are going on in their life. Um, that's what it's all about. And I think if you can, I think if you can do that as a leader, you can galvanize your workforce and you can galvanize the people that are working for you in ways that others just cannot do because it's authentic. Um, it's real and people recognize that. So that's how I would define it. So what's your favorite principle in heart led leadership? Uh, vulnerability, <laughs> vulnerability. Yeah, it really is. It's so powerful and yet so hard for most leaders to do. It's hard to show vulnerability as a leader, period, end of story. So, so let, let's talk, let's, let's get into this a little bit. So is vulnerability about just telling people about your weaknesses? Uh, how, how do you define it and how do you do it? I think it is, I think it's, I think it's telling people about your weaknesses. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, a big part of it. But it's not just your weaknesses. It's just, it's the things, it's recognizing the things that you're good at and not trying to be great at everything. And that's not, to me, that's not really, I guess you could say it's a weakness. Well, now everybody has strengths and weaknesses. I mean, right, exactly. You know, the, I mean, or you could say the whole Gallup philosophy is, is built on, you know, uh, on, you know, find your strengths and exploit them, right? So it's, right. you know, Everybody's got weaknesses. The question is, what do you do with them? Well, I would say it differently. I would say that there, I think everybody has things that they do better than other things. Doesn't necessarily mean they're weak at something. It just means that they're, you know, they they realize they recognize their strengths. And so part of part of this vulnerability as a CEO is realizing that there are there are people in the organization that are a heck of a lot better at certain things than you are. And as a leader, you're not there to understand. And, and, you know, and again, I'm talking about this as a CEO, but it really is any, any leader. It's not your job to have all the answers. It's your job to, to galvanize people together. And, and so if you show your appreciation for things that other people do really well, I guess I would call that maybe I'm calling that vulnerability. Maybe there's another word for it, but just, it's just the recognition that it takes more than one to tango. It takes a, a group to tango, if you will. And that's not true. It only takes two, really. But I mean, it, it takes a group to really get things done. And then people all come to the table with things that they do better than others. And if you come to work with that recognition, I think it's just, a, it's just powerful. I used to work for a guy that I would say was narcissistic ego driven and frankly as a result of it did not listen to people and that was a problem and <laughs> because he wasn't good at everything um and so maybe listening maybe vulnerability i mean there's a bunch of different words we can throw out they're all soft words but i think it's just the recognition uh that others know a lot more than you do about some things and and that you're willing to put your pride aside your ego aside to understand that and understand that that will make you a better company, a better organization, a better business unit, whatever it is that you're managing. So you mentioned the word soft. We're often accused of being soft at the Center for Heart-Led Leadership. Do you believe that heart-led leadership is soft? Uh, I, I think the answer is it's, I don't know how you would define soft, but I would just say it's essential. <laughs> I, would say, <laughs> uh, 
you know, I think it's, you might say it's soft, but I, then again, I'm not really sure what hard is. I mean, if, if maybe hard is, is managing the numbers or something, I don't know, but it's, it's not soft. It's, it's, it's just essential. I mean, without, without it, I don't think we ever were successful in turning the company around. I mean, it wasn't just about paying down debt for us and don't get me wrong. We, we did a plethora of things. We had to significantly reduce the operating risk in the company. You know, we had to cut overhead, which by the way, we had to lay off a third of our workforce. You talk about difficult. Um, you know, I, I tried to save jobs and then I realized that the only way we're going to save the company is that we would have to shed jobs. And that was hard. And so how do you present that to people? We had to cut our dividend. Um, we had to close some fringe operations in India and Brazil. You know, we had to reorganize our senior management team, let go of four out of the 10 top people in the company. I mean, man, we had to make some tough decisions, but if you're not good at the soft stuff, if people don't believe deep down inside, or you say soft stuff, but if you're, if you're not good deep down inside with, with being a human being and being authentic and being honest and being trusted by your employees, uh, to do the right thing. I mean, these things can be really hard. They're always hard on the people you lay off, but the more, more important thing is what about the other two thirds of the people that stick around? Do they really still want to work for you and, and the like, and can you galvanize them after you lay off a third of your workforce? And so if, if you're not, if you're not managing this way, I, I think you're going to, you're going to lose. I don't think we would succeed. Um, yes, we also had to reduce leverage on our balance sheet without doing that. We wouldn't succeed. But um, I, I don't think we reduce our the leverage. In, uh, we had to sell we had to sell seven billion dollars of assets. Seven billion. How do you get people to do that? Well, yeah, okay. So at the end, we reduced our leverage. But how in the heck did we get people to sell seven billion dollars of assets? That's probably a thousand buildings. Just to, so you know, how do you get people to do that in a really hard period of time? You do it because they respect you, because they want to work for you, because they want to save the company. Because, and why do they want to save the company? Why? Because of the way they're treated. At the end of the day, otherwise they'll leave. So I think it's, it's critically important. It's essential to running a company, to running a unit, to leading with today's workforce. Excellent. So, Walt, I know you're involved in a very unique charity. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm... Well, I'm involved in a number of charities, but one that I'm most involved in, I'm the chairman of the board of a, an organization here in Colorado called Colorado Uplift. And um, the organization teaches underprivileged inner-city youth in public schools about living lives of character. We teach classes from the third grade through high school with focus on 13 character qualities and life skills that they should be living out. And... Um, the results are phenomenal. I mean, our, our high school graduation rates are well over 90% compared to inner city graduation rates of kids that don't take these classes of barely 60%. And over 80% of our students go on to receive a post-secondary education. And so, you know, we're also in the process of taking the concept national through an affiliate uh, called Elevate, Elevate USA. They're a separate 501c3 organization, and they're now in seven other cities throughout the United States and growing. And so I'm really honored to be a part of it's such a great program, really. And is Elevate the same as Sally Krawcheck's Elevate, that one? No, it's not. 
must be different. I didn't realize Sally had something called Elevate, actually. Yeah, so she's she's got a, it's a group for business women to, to help business women help business women. Oh, yeah, no, no, this is, this is different. It's the, it's the same concept we have where we hire teacher mentors. We negotiate contracts with the public school system, um, some private, but mostly 80 or 90% of it's public. And um, we go in and teach these classes about character. Uh, life skills, leadership, those sorts of things. And remember, these are kids that unfortunately don't get these skills from their parents. I mean, you ask people all the time, well, how do you get these skills? Well, I, I got them because I watched my parents. And uh, a lot of these kids' parents are incarcerated or their parents are on drugs. And, and unfortunately, they don't have that mentorship at home. And so we try to provide them that in the public schools. They take an elective class. Oftentimes, the principal has recommended that certain kids take the class. And, and then we try to live that out in the evenings with them because it's hard. To, it's one thing to teach the class. It's another to live it out in the evenings and we provide them a safe place to go in the evenings. And so it's been just a wonderful program. It's been around for 35 years. We've mentored thousands and thousands of kids here in, in Denver, Colorado. And again, we're trying to take the concept and we have taken the concept successfully throughout the uh, United States. So, so, um, if you'll give us some information that we can put on the, the heart of leaders website for people who want to reach out to you and help with, with Colorado uplift. Oh, that, that would be absolutely great if we could do that. And, um, it's Colorado org is their, um, website. And if you want to, if you want to look it up from there and I would yep. be uh, happy to be helpful to anybody. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get more information from you, Walt, and we'll put it on the heart of leaders website. So they can go find you there. So uh, we got just a couple of minutes left. What, what's next for Walt Rakowicz? Well, you know, I, I've, I've been blessed to have the opportunity with the help of a great management team to lead a true turnaround in the corporate world and experience both the, the good and the bad that goes along with that. And so, you know, in addition to my work, on, I'm on four corporate boards now. Uh, three public boards and one private board, and then I'm on a few charity boards. I also blog about leadership issues frequently. You can check out what I have to say on on my website, which is waltrakowich.com, W-A-L-T-R-A-K-O-W-I-C-H.com. And I, I'm also on LinkedIn under Walter Rakowich. And so, you know, as you also mentioned, I'm I'm writing a book. And they speak from time to time on the challenges of leading in this day of age. I think we live in a time of incredible technological change. And, you know, we've got to work even harder to intentionally lead in our world. And so the book, as you mentioned, will touch on the environment that we're in and, and how we most effectively lead in that environment. And so, you know, from my perspective, between the blogging and, and the, um, the board work and the charities that I'm on. I'm also on the board at Penn State University and I'm the chairman of the audit committee at Penn State. And so that keeps me real busy as well. So I've got a number of different things I'm doing and I'm still trying to keep bring, bring my handicap down in golf. So I'm doing a little <laughs> bit of that too. <laughs> All right. Well, Walt, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, your very busy life to uh, share with us on the Heart of Leaders podcast. Walt's one of our faculty members and uh, a real highlight. People always love to get with Walt and, and chat with him when he comes to, 
to the program. So thank you, Walt, for, for joining us. Thank you, Rick. My pleasure. And uh, you take care, okay? All right. This is Rick Barrera, and I'd like to invite you to join our Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado. There are four sessions per year, one per quarter, and each session is three days long. Our sessions are part classroom and part experiential, meaning we give you an opportunity to practice what you're learning in an active environment. You'll be interacting with fellow explorers in an immersive experience designed to get you moving and apply what you've learned. It's educational, it's engaging, and it's fun. I guarantee you'll find the faculty and your fellow explorers are among the coolest and nicest people you'll ever meet. You'll make lifelong friends and build a world-class network to help you with whatever's next for you. You can learn more at heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.